The title of my sermon this morning is Serving and Celebrating. In this message, I want to survey what the Bible has to say about serving together as a church and celebrating God's provision of leaders for the church. This is a timely study for us today because it is the last Sunday of Pastor Appreciation Month. And we haven't paused as a church to take note of this special month. It is a special month, and this is the last special Sunday of this special month. During the month of October, there is an annual observance in many countries around the world, including the United States, where congregations and communities take the time to show gratitude and appreciation to celebrate uh, the dedication of pastors and church leaders in their lives. In anticipation of this month, I have personally picked up some presents for our pastoral leadership team here in our church to bless them. And together, I want to make sure that we personally show them love today. So that said, uh, you guys in the room, uh, James, I see you in the back there on our pastoral team. Please don't leave service today without grabbing a present from me. And please, church, let's make sure after the service to do our best to uh, pat them on the back, give them a high five, a big hug, to show gratitude to these men and ultimately to our God for his provision of them. Later in this message, I will show you their faces on a PowerPoint slide and in case you don't know their faces or names. But uh, first, I want to get us into the Scripture. More than showing you PowerPoint slides, I want to show you God's Word. And the first area of Scripture that we're going to get into this morning from our sacred text is found in the book of Acts. So would you open your Bibles to the book of Acts and find your way to the second chapter in the book of Acts. While you are turning to Acts chapter 2, in God's providence, I am happy to reflect on serving and celebrating leaders in the church on this particular weekend because this particular weekend coincides with Reformation Sunday, which is today. And so uh, church today is a special day because we want to commemorate and give thanks to God for pastors in our church, but also because it is Reformation Sunday. All around the world, there are Protestant churches that are reflecting on Protestant church history this Sunday. And it is done on this Sunday because it lands closest to October the 31st, 1517, when a Roman papal monk in Germany named Martin Luther nailed, nailed a humble list of corruptions regarding the Romanist church to a public bulletin board. The doors at All Saints in Wittenberg. At that time, that was sort of the Facebook. You posted things on there, and that's where, you know, the, the X or the Twitter feed starts blowing up. So he posted the 95 Thesis, which sparked a viral Twitter debate. Uh, that said, I have provided in the, in the entryway a, a personal copy of uh, cut and paste straight from Martin Luther of the 95 Thesis, front and back, you get all 95. So you can take one uh, after church and just stop at a Catholic church and stick it on the wall. Uh, <laughs> it's Reformation Sunday. Have fun. Uh, I'm, I'm partially kidding. Okay, so uh, prior to uh, Luther's 95 Thesis, of course, there were various Protestant groups that were saying the same thing and similar things to what Luther and others said in the Protestant Reformation flowing from the 95 Thesis. Uh, not to mention the many churches uh, outside of the West in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East who worship Jesus unattached from the so-called Catholic Church headquartered in Rome and headed by a mere mortal man called the Pope whose rule extended over, over many churches in the West. Now that said, in the West there was a need for protest, reformation, because the corruptions and the abuses in, in that particular church were very deep and anti-biblical. 
And, and they had the gall to claim that they were the only true church in the earth when Christianity had spread around the world and there were tons of churches all around the world unattached to them. Uh, hence, the protesting, uh, uh, those protesters were called the Protestants. Or they were also called the Reformers because they, they were seeking to reform the church. They loved the church. They were seeking to reform the church, specifically of its immorality and its bad doctrine. As the protests gained ground, a saying emerged that goes like this, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda. Uh, this is a Latin phrase which means the church reformed, always reforming. Now, the meaning of this phrase was to remind the movement of its own constant need for reform morally and spiritually, uh, because it too, you Protestants too, you, you can follow the way of, of Roman papalism and become corrupt and, and, and that happens. Uh, you, you have reform movements, and, and they're good for a while, and then they go bad. So let's remember, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda. Um, as, as they were progressing, as the Protestant movement was going, this was no doubt a need, because some of those movements strayed as well, reminding ourselves of this constant need for reformation. The Reformation was a call to the church to repent, to return to God, and to get back to the sacred scripture of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. Often today, when church folks think of Reformation, they may think of theological concepts like justification, predestination, election, slogans like the five solas, and you know, acronyms like the tulip, which no doubt are a part of the Reformation, but central to the Reformation was the purity and ministry of the church. The reformers wanted morality in the church and to do away with the idea of a ministerial priesthood of monks and priests and popes and whatnot who effectively had removed the work of ministry, the work of serving. They had removed it and, and placed it in the hands of a, a professional clerical class instead of it being the calling of all believers in the church. This brings us to the first point on your outline, serving as saints. I ask you to turn to the book of Acts and to find your way to the second chapter in the book of Acts because there we find a wonderful historical description of what the early church looked like. In fact, the whole book of Acts is a record of what the early church looked like, and we're going to see in the book of Acts this morning as we survey it and consider other writings in the New Testament, a theology of serving in the church and also an understanding of celebrating our leaders in the church that God raises up. We're going to see this morning that the ministry of the church was not headed by a pope or a professional class, but it was an organic work of the people, the saints. And the pastors that were chosen among the saints weren't some special clerical class. They're, they're a part of the flock. They're a part of the sheep. Uh, regularly, we see in the writings of the apostles to the church that, that everyone in the church is acknowledged as saints. They are called, they are called saints in the Scripture. They are described as a universal priesthood of all believers. And so in the church there isn't saints and you know, regular folks or pastors and regular folks or whatever. We're all called saints. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, to God's church at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints. Romans 1, 7, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. The New Testament is clear. All who belong to Christ by faith are saints. None of us are more saintly than our other Christian brothers and sisters. This is why in the Protestant Reformation, we shun the idea of there being patron saints. Uh, not to mention, we shun the idea that, you know, you can pray to dead people and stuff like that. No, there's no, there's no distinguishing here. 
We are the priesthood, the church of Jesus Christ. We are chosen of Him and washed by Him and made holy by Him, and hence we are His saints. Further, none of us are exempt from the calling of being a part of the service of this royal priesthood that Jesus has saved us for. Meaning we are all called, all Christians are called to serve. There is no such thing in the New Testament as a Christian who doesn't serve. The Apostle Peter told the church in 1 Peter 2, 5, you are living stones, you are being built as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're called to serve. We are the priesthood. We are the saints. The apostles were handpicked by Jesus to begin the church after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, where I asked you to turn. Look at the text. Look at Acts chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 4. You see in those verses, the Holy Spirit is being poured out. We worship a God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. One God in three persons. We, we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of the ministry of the Son who took on flesh. At the end of those Gospel accounts and at the beginning of the book of Acts, which overlaps with it, we see the Son has risen from the dead and He ascends to heaven. And now the Holy Spirit is sent to birth the church. He, the Spirit, is poured out on the church. In Acts chapter 2, verses 1-4, through 4, and continuing on with your eyes as you see, you see a scene that mirrors a reversal of the Tower of Babel. We see the Spirit joining peoples and languages in the heart of Jewish Jerusalem on the Jewish Holy Day of Pentecost. Peter then preaches. Draw your eyes into the text at verse 14. You see, but Peter taking the stand, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, you who live in Jerusalem. And from verse 14 all the way to verse 40, with the power of the Spirit freshly poured out, we read of souls being saved and the repentant being baptized to identify them in Christ to make them members of His church, the first members of His church. Uh, look into the text at verse 41 through uh, verse 47. It gives us the first historical description of the Jewish church in Jerusalem. Let's read the text together. Verse 41. So then those who had received His word were baptized. There was added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions. They were sharing them with all, as anyone might have a need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. There you see in this description, 41 through 47, that there are all, it's all hands on deck. Everyone is serving. Verse 41 is an excellent verse to read on Reformation Sunday because it reminds us that God is the one who saves and adds to His church, and He does, he does so through the preaching of the Gospel accomplished in the Spirit's power. Salvation is a gift of God directly mediated through Christ and not through men or rituals. Now, in terms of men and rituals, uh, they were given to saints together to serve one another. The breaking of bread. That's the ritual of communion. We see the ritual of baptism. These, these are symbols and signs for those who are saved. They are not rituals that you go through in order to merit salvation. Here in the text, we see a description of people whose lives have been changed by God 
And as a result, they are serving one another. They, they are sacrificing for one another. We have this description of people selling their homes for the church to stay on mission in the city. This is the exact opposite of our day when people sell their homes to leave their churches to go to other cities for amenities and comforts. As you keep reading the book of Acts, we find that discomfort was right around the corner, every corner. There was suffering that came with serving. Hence, it is actual sacrifice. If you don't have to suffer to serve, then it's, it, you know, what's going on there? They're, they're suffering to serve. Now, we don't have time to survey the whole book of Acts, but please uh, find your way into the 20th chapter. And as you are turning from chapter 2 to chapter 20, let me summarize the pages that you are turning past. From chapter 2 to chapter 12, the gospel spreads from Jewish Jerusalem to Judea. It reaches Africans, Asians, Gentiles. And then in chapters uh, 13 through 20, the Apostle Paul's ministry is highlighted as he carries the gospel from Antioch to Europe, planting churches and entrusting these churches to the saints. This brings us to the sub-point. As Christians, we are called to serve in the church. I ask you to turn to Acts chapter 20, and we're going to pick up in verse 17 of Acts chapter 20, because there is a wonderful historical description here that we find about the service of the church, all hands on deck, everyone's called to serve, and also of celebrating leadership in the early church. Keep in mind that while Paul is speaking in the narrative here in Acts chapter 20, in Acts 2 we saw Peter speaking, in Acts 20 we'll see Paul speaking. Keep in mind, however, that the author of the first century document that we call the book of Acts is written by the historian Dr. Luke. Uh, Luke writes this, and this is significant as we are in chapter 20 because, because it means that others acknowledge the Apostle Paul's words as true, showing that not only was his message that he proclaimed true, but also that Paul's life was true. Paul was the real. No, there was no cap in Paul. He wasn't fronting. He was humble, sacrificial, hardworking, tireless, devoted, skillful. Draw your eyes at verse 17 in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called to him the elders. There he's speaking of the pastoral leadership in the church. He called the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he, he, he said to them, You yourselves know that from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and tears, and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews." Now keep in mind that Paul is Jewish, okay? So this isn't an anti-Semitic, uh, you know, phrase here. Don't, don't cancel Luke and Paul. They're, they're Jewish, okay? The thing to keep in mind in context is that from chapter 2 to chapter 20, the church was moving from the Jewish community to the non-Jewish community, and as a result of this, this created some tensions. Also keep in mind that Paul himself was once a part of a militant type of Jewish Hamas group that was persecuting Jewish Christians because they saw Jewish Christians as a threat to the Jewish nation of Israel, who were at the time, Israel, occupied by Rome. And so the, the fear of militant rabbinic groups, like what Paul was a part of uh, before he was saved, is, is that, is that this, this Jewish church following this Jewish Messiah is, is going to compromise our standing in occupied Rome. The fear of militant rabbinic groups was that they would stir the powers of Rome who would see themselves as anti-Semitic and look for an excuse to exile the Jews and completely colonize the land. 
And so, so, so for those militant Jewish Hamas type groups in Judea, Jerusalem at the time, they were trying to suppress the Jesus movement because they were worried it was going to get them in trouble with Rome. The Jewish Christians living in the land were caught in the crosshairs of a nationalistic, militant, rabbinic Jewish movement that rejected uh, Jesus as Israel's Messiah. They're caught in the crosshairs of that group and also the, the, the group of the occupiers of Rome. Okay, So this is what Paul is against here. This is what the text is describing in terms of the Jewish people who are specifically coming against him. This is what the church was, against, was, was up against by Acts chapter 20. And saints serving in the church would suffer as they were attacked by militant Jewish Hamas-type groups. It is interesting saying this because it is still true today. In fact, the illustration that I'm using of Hamas to help communicate what's going on in the text is because of what's going on today. Our eyes are on the land of Israel because of what happened this month. On October the 7th, a militant Islamic group known as Hamas, whose charter declaration calls for the end of the Jews in the land, fired thousands of rocket, rockets towards Israeli towns. Before breaking through sections of fortified border fences and sending armed militants deep into Israeli territory, there Hamas gunmen brutally killed more than 1,400 people, including civilians and children, and took more than 200 hostages in what has been described as the worst massacre of the Jews since the Holocaust. In addition to the dead, there were, there, there were over 5,000 injured. There were two, 250,000 Jewish people displaced. In response to this, Israel declared war, and now we have reports of over 7,000 Palestinians who have been killed, over 18,000 Palestinians who have been injured, 1.4 million Palestinians that have been displaced, with, the, with around uh, 28,000 Palestinian residential units destroyed. In the Middle East, we are seeing a war and the surrounding nations are taking sides and negotiating them. Yemen, Iraq, Iran, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt. Amidst these nations are militant anti-Semitic forces such as Hamas and Hezbollah and others who want to see the earth eradicated of Jewish people. Added to this powder keg in the Middle East, we have foreign nations from east to west and allies that are complicating things. It feels like we are seeing World War III forming, and it feels like our nation is being pulled into it. In our own case, we have had hundreds of troops deployed and are deploying to the Middle East, not to mention the thousands already deployed in scores of military bases around the world. The Pentagon has deployed two aircraft carriers, and they're supporting ships to the eastern Mediterranean since the attacks on Israel. Meanwhile, we have skirmishes, close calls that raise concerns for safety in our nation, Earlier this year, we had the Chinese balloon incident, remember that, in which a stratosphere flew out of, of China into American airspace for quite some time before the U.S. Air Force had to shoot it down. And just this week, October 24th, a Chinese fighter came within 10 feet of an American B-52 bomber flying over the South China Sea, nearly causing an accident and, 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 you know, and raising all sorts of, what was that about? And then yesterday, U.S. Secret Service released a statement about how our Air Force had to deploy fighter jets to intercept and scramble a plane that entered restricted airspace near President Biden's residence in Wilmington, Delaware. People are on edge. And for good reason. The nations are plotting. The powers are planning. Are these the last days that our Lord Jesus taught us about that would be marked by wars and rumors of wars? I wonder. But I don't know. 
That said, here's what I do know. Listen to me. Here's what I do know. Listen, brothers and sisters, listen. What we do know is who wins in the end, Jesus. And we are on his side. Further, what we do know is that in this age, his side advances not by sword in combat, but by saints in church serving. The church in the Middle East, we see God in the move. God is saving people and he's changing their lives. Speaking which, if, you, if you've not heard of him, Mossab Hassan Youssef is worth checking out. He's the disowned eldest son of the co-founder of Hamas who God saved and transformed. And you can see him all over the internet and writing books and what have you, preaching Christ to the lost. The historical fact is that the church was in the land hundreds of years before the militant and, and racist groups arose in the land. In fact, the church of St. Uh, Porphyrus in, in Gaza dates back to 425. We, we, have, uh, we have the archaeological remains of a church in Gaza going back to 400. I mean, this is, this is 145 years before uh, the, the prophet Muhammad was even born. The gospel was in Gaza, in Acts, in this book in front of us, in the book of Acts. The gospel penetrated Gaza, and it penetrated Israel, and it penetrated Jordan and Syria. Uh, local congregations all over the Middle East. We have Christians in Yemen, Iraq, Iran, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, the West Bank, and Israel. You have Messianic Jews worshiping Jesus. In, in, in these places, God has planted these churches as embassies, as embassies to proclaim to the nations the gospel of Jesus, which explains the wars of the nations. You see, the wars of the nations are a symptom of a deeper problem, namely the war of humanity that, that humanity has declared against God their Creator. And this is why we need Jesus. We need one who can reconcile us to our Creator. And this is why we need to understand who Jesus is. Jesus isn't a mere prophet. He isn't a third party. Jesus is God Himself. Again, we worship a God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus is the Son in the flesh who came and lived the life that none of us have lived and has come to satisfy the demands that, that, that call for this war that humanity has created. The consequences of declaring war on the Creator is death and judgment. Praise be. Praise be to the God who is gracious and has extended forgiveness. And not just extended forgiveness, He has gone all the way and paid the debt for us. You see, the Apostle Paul knew that this message of God the Son becoming flesh, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the nations, who dies for His people, who pours out His Spirit, who saves by faith alone in Christ alone, he knew that that message was what occupied Israel needed and what the nations around Israel needed. That was what he leaned on in times of crisis. Look at verse 20. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul preached in lands that were torn by war. He ministered in the shadow of the occupying power of Rome. Rome, they were colonizers. They were oppressors. Paul was no doubt a stranger to dead bodies, border crossings, Bad guys, violence, political corruption, inept, evil, civil leaders. Paul knew that. That said, his hope in true change was not in government reform or military negotiations, 
or social justice, all three of which, hear me, are very important. Paul's hope was in the power of the gospel and the word of God to change hearts and homes. He moves, the text says, from house to house. He's not overtaken by fear that there's occupiers and there's violence and there's ethnic strife and there's fake news and there's people posting and and saying things that they don't understand and the rest. He's not distracted by any of that. He's so focused on the gospel. And I say that to encourage us in times like this that we would follow his example. Our our calling in life is is not to get in Twitter wars and and post little memes that expose people's uh, fallacious understanding of current affairs. Our calling is to point people to the North Star. That they would see and they would follow Him. And that Christ's church in times like this would follow the example that has been given to us in Acts that the church would be known for serving and the church would be known for sharing this message of the Gospel as opposed to being known as you know, culture warriors who are, who are on the prowl just seeking to pounce on someone who said something stupid. Point them to the North Star, brothers and sisters. That is where there is life. That is what Paul is doing. I did not shrink from declaring to you this message. He spreads in the land that is very dark. And he does this with the light of the Gospel. You see, the light of Christ's church cannot be snuffed out by earthly powers. They will never prevail against the church. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, look at what Jesus told His disciples. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Like the Apostle Paul, Christ's hope was in the church. A city of light that Christ built to shine in the darkness. Of course Paul believed that. He was trained by Christ personally. He had experienced the power of Christ's light at work in Christ's church. Times have not changed. The local church is still God's power and plan to bring true and lasting peace to the world. Local congregations, local churches in the shadow of Rome transformed the entire Roman Empire. And so too today it is my prayer that the church would do the same with the empires that are over us as it relates to the rumblings in Gaza and Israel and the West Bank and the forces of false religion that drink at the well of violence and anti-Semitism that advance by the sword. It is the power of the church in those places who can bring healing to people from past national sins. Regardless of what side they're on in terms of, yeah, well, Israel, you did this, and Palestine, you did this. It is the church that can bring healing from past national sins. It is the church that can bring reconciliation between ethnic groups, between classes, between tribes, between political parties unifying people under their common identity in Christ. You know, in the Gaza, there are churches. In Israel, there are churches. In the West Bank, there are churches. I've had the opportunity of of visiting many of them, and I tell you what, this is like the slice of heaven on earth. If the temple was once the porthole of the heavens to the earth, these congregations and these worn, torn, uh, you know, heavy, dark places where, where this group hates this group and this group hates this group, and you walk into a church and you see this group and that group holding hands and praising God. Here's a picture of a church building in Gaza. This is the Gaza Baptist Church. This is a hub of evangelical faith in Gaza. 
The Gospel Baptist Church provides not, not only uh, you know, saints serving one another and, and, and the Gospel, but it also has a public library. It is accessible to both Christians and Muslims. A public library that they use to serve the community. Uh, they, they are, they are uh, less than 1% of the population, evangelicals in Gaza. Speaking of Baptist evangelicals in Gaza, the recent bombing of the hospital in Gaza, uh, you've seen it in the news. You hear people talking about the Gaza Baptist Hospital. It began in 1882 when the Ottoman Empire uh, was still, still in town. It was a medical mission that the Anglicans started. It was the Anglican Church uh, Missionary Society, the CMS. In 1954, the CMS was purchased by the Southern Baptist Convention, and they renamed it the Gaza Baptist Hospital. In the 1980s, it was returned to the CMS, which turned it over to the Anglican Diocese of Jerusalem. The diocese promptly changed the name of the hospital to Ahli Arab Hospital, but it is still known today among people in the land and even in the news as the Baptist Hospital. The bombing of this hospital was sad to hear of, as it is Gaza's only cancer hospital, and many died and were injured in this bombing. Added to the sadness is the confusion, as one nation blames the other for the bombing, right? You did it, we did it? No, no, you did it, right? And people in social media without any forensic experience in war crimes and without having even analyzed all of the footage start taking sides. That said, for the Christian, the side that we stand on is with God who will judge all sides in every war crime and all oppression and more. He'll judge our hearts and even our thoughts. So as war and confusion and blame shifting and violence rages, we are reminded vividly of the war humanity has declared on God and all of the casualties that have ensued since our father Adam and our mother Eve. And so today we, we, we come to the text of Scripture and we're reading about the church in the very land that we're watching today in the news and we're being reminded that Christ has a church there and Christ's church in the end will win. Look at verse 22 in the text. Behold, we are bound by the Spirit. I'm on my way to Jerusalem not knowing what's going to happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city saying bonds and afflictions await me. The Holy Spirit was carrying Paul and preparing Paul for suffering that laid ahead as they carried the light of the gospel in the darkness. Churches that are really serving one another, that are really living out this life that Christ has called us to and making disciples and proclaiming the gospel, you're going to face suffering. To, to, to carry this, Paul himself needed to be changed by God, and that's exactly what God did. God changed Paul. Again, he went from being a militant uh, Jewish Hamas member to being one who suffered for the gospel. We see how deeply Paul was transformed. Look at how he describes his understanding of life now. Verse 24, I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish the course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel, of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Paul sees his ministry as something that God has given to his people, something that we as his people receive and we cheerfully suffer for it. Further, it is not something that we suffer alone in. It is a shared burden, which leads to the next point. First, as Christians, we're called to serve in the church. Second, some within the church God will raise up to be leaders. 
This particular group that Paul is speaking to that have come uh, to, to see him as he's traveling are leaders in the church. So draw your eyes at, at verse 26 in the text. You see verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. I did not shrink from declaring this, this, this gospel. right? I did not de- shrink from declaring the whole purpose of God. Verse 28, Be on your guard for you yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His blood. So the Holy Spirit raises up leaders. And in this case, Paul is uh, dealing with the Spirit raising up pastors to serve the church, uh, those churches that he's running around planting. Uh, Paul charges the leaders of those churches, those pastors, to guard those flocks. To shepherd. That's what pastoring is. The word pastor is the word shepherd. Paul reminds them that these flocks have been purchased with Christ's blood. And so that changes the way you shepherd when you see, hey, th- these, this flock was purchased with His blood. And, and hence, pastoral leadership in the church, we are called to this willingness that Paul has described himself in. I don't, I don't consider my life as of anything. I'm called to serve and to care for this flock that has been purchased by Christ's own blood. With everything going on in the Middle East, and with this charge to shepherd and sacrifice, I'd be remiss not to tell you about Rami Qadir Ayad, who was a Palestinian Christian who was the manager of the only Christian bookstore in Gaza. It was known as the Teacher's Bookshop. As well, he was the director of the Protestant Holy Bible Society. Uh, Rami was a faithful servant of the church. The bookstore faced multiple threats and attacks. It had been bombed on several occasions. Rami was, was known to have received death threats over the years many, many times. In April of 2007, the bookstore had been firebombed, and on the 7th of October, Rami was kidnapped. His dead body was found. He had been shot and stabbed. He was a father of two small children, and his wife was pregnant. A shadowy group called the Righteous Swords of Islam claimed responsibility for killing this man because of his Christian faith. You know, I share a story like this because in the West, becoming a leader in the church... I mean, if anything, it could, you know, in the Bible Belt particularly, it could be seen as a badge of honor, you know? Oh, you're a pastor. Oh, that's great, you know? Get your own parking space and business cards and stuff like that. But we must remember that the church was born in opposition and occupation and under oppression, and that is still continuing today. In spite of opposition, God carried His people and He works through the people serving. And then among the people serving, He raises up pastors to shepherd those people to keep the flock going. And so see, it's vitally important that the church understands the calling of leadership to protect from wolves and hypocrisy. Draw your eyes into the text at verse 29. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, And from among your own selves, men are going to rise speaking perverse things to draw disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that day and night for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Notice here that Paul sees the word of God as the thing that the people need for protection. To build them up, to point them to the North Star, to Christ leading them in worship and in ministry of the Word of God. Acts 20 is very much a Leadership 101 lesson on the lips of Paul to, this, to a serving church. 
subsequently from the lips of Paul to the pen of Luke, ultimately inspired by the same Holy Spirit who was poured out in Acts chapter 2 that carried the people from chapter 2 to chapter 20 and beyond. Because God works through His church, it is important for us to understand some basics about leadership. And since it's Pastor Appreciation Month, it, it seemed fitting to hit that, so we move from serving as saints to learning leadership. A church 101, a basic ecclesiology. The church was something that was purchased with Jesus' blood, as we have seen. The church is something that Jesus said He came to build. In, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus said, I will, future tense, I will build my church. Uh, you see, the church wasn't Israel. It, it wasn't a thing yet. Christ was actually building it. I will build my church. And He did just that. He installed the apostles to be the foundation of the church. And on the day of Pentecost that we saw in Acts chapter 2, He poured out the Holy Spirit to fuse them together. So the church is the community of Jesus' followers fused by the Holy Spirit and biblically organized and operating on mission for the gospel led by shepherds. Where is the church? The, the church is all around the world. It's in Gaza, it's in Israel, it's in West Bank, it's in Westchester, it's in Compton. It's all around the world. We gather on Sundays... And the gathering in local congregations is also what we call the church. So this morning, the church is here. This is the church here. We are the church gathered. And after the service, we will be the church scattered as we go out into the places that, that God has placed us to share the gospel with those around us. Uh, you know, this, this week, trick-or-treaters are going to be coming to your house. Share the gospel with them. This week, Brother Landon is going to go to Hollywood and just talk to strangers, tell them about Jesus. Go share the gospel with them. When you go to work in the office, you are the church scattered. You are out there sharing that message. So we make the distinction between the church gathered and the church scattered. Every true and local church is a part of the greater work of the church, what we call the universal church. And so this morning, there's a sense in which the church is here but there's also a sense in which the, the, the church is out there, the church universal. Jesus has ascended into heaven, and with his apostles, he has uh, founded his church, and he is still leading his church. So to answer the question on your outline, who is the authoritative senior leader of the church? The leader of the church is none other than Christ. Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5? I want to show you a verse that is really important, 1 Peter chapter 5. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we are going to see uh, Christ is referred to as the, as the head of His church. In Colossians chapter 1, we read that Christ is the head of the church. In 1 Peter chapter 5, if you draw your eyes at verse 4, it says here, the chief shepherd. You see that phrase, the chief shepherd. Who is the chief shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 4? It is none other than Christ when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Uh, Christ is the chief. He's the senior shepherd. He's the senior pastor. This is one of the reasons why in our church we resist the nomenclature of senior pastor. People will uh, sometimes say, back when we had bulletins, in fact, uh, on the back we would have our church staff listed and we would have at the top, senior pastor Jesus Christ. Uh, new visitors would come and, and, and they would say, who's, who's the senior pastor here? I'd hand them the bulletin. I'd say, Jesus. And they'd go, no, really. Who is, you know, no, really, like who? You know, I'm like, no, really, like he is. We, we, don't, we, don't, we don't use that phrase around this church because we want to emphasize 1 Peter 5.4. 
Now, his authority is transmitted to his under-shepherds in the church, and we have under-shepherds in the church. These under-shepherds are called in Titus 1-7, God's stewards. As God's stewards, they steward and they shepherd the flock that was purchased by his blood that belongs to him. So Jesus has given the church the scripture, which is our final authority, for purposes of shepherding his people. Uh, the, the apostles warn us uh, in such places as 1 Corinthians 4, 6, and I quote, not to go beyond what is written. That is the exhortation to the church. We don't go beyond what is written. We are pointing people to the North Star, Christ, the gospel, and we are pointing them to his word. So Jesus has given the church scripture as his final rule on earth. Jesus has continued earthly authority through pastoral leadership in the church. Look at 1 Peter 5, 1. Therefore, I exalt the, the elders among you as your fellow elder. So much for Peter being the first pope. He just calls himself a fellow elder. And a witness... It's Reformation Sunday. i got to take digs. All right. Uh, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, ex exercising oversight not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain but with eagerness nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Here, here, here Peter speaks to the pastors, the elders, and he, and he tells them to exercise oversight in the church. He's an apostle, right, which is a unique position that was limited to a select few in the first century. So anytime I see someone running around talking about I'm an apostle, I just go, no, you're not, um, you know, moving on then, right? Even as an apostle, he sees himself as noted as a fellow elder, his authority comes not from his position, but from the power of God's word. And so we, we need to, uh, that said, uh, pay, pay attention, however, to the position. It is of significance. It is of importance. First Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, it says that these leaders have charge over the congregation. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, we are told to obey these leaders, these pastors, and submit to them. Uh, the word for leader in Hebrews 13, 17 in front of you is it's speaking of pastoral leaders. That same word is used in Acts 15, 22. These uh, three passages, 1 Peter 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, and Hebrews 13, can be hard for our egalitarian and individualistic culture. We don't like to be told to submit, to obey, or told that someone is in charge over us. Uh, if the pastor doesn't like what, you know, if you don't like what the pastor says, you could just leave or go to another church or find one that agrees with you. We don't like being told that we need to submit. Hebrews 13, 17 is, is, is clear. And it also says there in the text, uh, it says to obey, and it mentions that a failure to obey would be disadvantageous and unprofitable uh, for the flock. By way of implication, there's actually advantages to us following people who are authority figures in the church over us. And that said, for people who are authority figures, this is not a light responsibility. This isn't, this isn't anything that uh, you ought to say, yeah, I like that verse, obey me. <laughs> what are you talking about? Do you know what you've signed up for? A little pastoral leadership 101 here. Pastors, as, as leaders, uh, they've, they've signed up for a hard task. Uh, they have signed up for a really hard task. Many pastors have learned this the hard way in recent years. Uh, they've learned the hard way in recent years that, hey, sheep have teeth, sheep bite, ministry is hard. Statistically, the pay is low, the stress is high. Take a look, if you, if you dare, at some of the statistics. 80% of pastors 
of believe pastoral ministry has negatively impacted their families. 90% of pastors feel they are inadequately trained uh, to cope with the demands of ministry. 70% say they have a lower self-image than they did when they first started. Only one out of ten ministers actually retire as a minister in some form. The profession of pastor is near the bottom of surveys in terms of most respected professions. Over 4,000 churches in America closed last year. That's more than 10 every single day. Many denominations report an empty pulpit crisis. They cannot find ministers willing to fill positions. More than 50% of pastors are so discouraged they regularly are considering leaving the ministry. In our own neighborhood here in West LA, I've seen many churches turned into apartment buildings and businesses. They're gone. 80% of seminary and Bible school graduates who enter ministry will leave in the first five years. 85% of pastors said their greatest struggle is dealing with problem people in the church. 90% said the ministry was completely different than what they thought it would be. 80% of pastors' wives feel left out and unappreciated by church members. I mean, these these statistics are scary. 80% of pastors' wives, 70% of pastors are constantly fighting depression. Statistics like these are all the more reason why we have a whole month for Pastor Appreciation Month. And it's reason for us to pause and study the neglected topic of pastoring. Um, and, And speaking of the neglected topic, I think this adds to the dropout rate as many who burn out do so because they didn't understand what they were signing up for. And, they, and, and, and their churches don't understand that actually they're called to serve too. So it's not just that you're hiring someone who's doing the service and we come and watch, but it's our shared, it's our shared responsibility. Uh, further, many pastors, I think, tap out because they think that pastoring is a kind of cowboy thing where you're doing it alone. This leads to the next point on the outline, the plurality of the pastor. Notice in 1 Peter 5, hopefully you're still open there, he speaks of elders in the plural. The consistent pattern of the New Testament, if you look up here, is that the churches would be led by a plurality of pastors. Acts 11.30, pastors. Acts 14.23, pastors in every church. Acts 15.2, verse 4, verse 6, verse 22, 23, pastors in the church of Jerusalem. Go down the list. It was meant to be a, a team. So again, when, I, when people will say things like, who is the pastor of the church, you're already starting with a faulty understanding of the church because a church ought not to have one pastor. They should be led by a team. That is the biblical pattern. The, the biblical pattern of the plural team of the pastors is that they have a shared responsibility to feed, guide, and protect the church. We feed, we guide, we protect the church. The gospel is foundational in all three of these, feeding, guiding, and protecting. Hence, pastors must be gospel preachers as they carry on in the ministry. Added, pastors must be men, which leads to the next point, the masculine maturity of the pastor. This is also not popular in our day um, because we have all sorts of confusion around gender and even before the gender confusion and pride stuff. We've had an age of feminism, egalitarianism that's kind of doing away the normative roles of Scripture in terms of having men leading things. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul talks about the office of pastor, he says, if any man aspires to the office, all, all, all of the listing and the descriptions of it in the New Testament are all masculine. I think the other reason why we have a hard time uh, with, with male leadership is particularly because in our culture, we see a lot of Peter Pans and Al Bundys and Homer Simpsons, pathetic men, Juxtapose, we see 
uh, lots of strong women. And you kind of go, well, why, well, you know, why would we want to have men leading the thing? Don't you know what men do? And men do certainly make a mess of things, but alas, it is not a call to change what Scripture says. It is a call for men to repent, to buckle up, to become men, and to raise up and serve in the church. And if God so ordains, to call them to be uh, a part of a pastoral team in a local church. Speaking of those pastors, the terms in the Bible, you have them listed on your outline, are poyu men, presbutos, and episkopos. All of these terms are used interchangeably for the same position. So if I see someone calling himself bishop or something like that, I'm like, I already, like hey, you don't understand what episkopos means. It's the same as presbutos and poyumen. These are all used interchangeably, and it's very clear in the Scripture. Titus 1.5 and 1.7, I'll put it in front of you. You can see there clearly in the text in verse 5, where presbutos and episkopos in verse 7 are used interchangeably. I, I'm laboring on these points because it is important for you as a church to understand things we cover in our membership class, but things we need to revisit. And alas, it's Pastor Appreciation uh, Month, so here we go. Acts chapter 20, we, we saw this as well, but I didn't highlight it for you when we were reading the text, but here you can see in the original language the interchangeableness of presbutos, episkopos, and poiumanein in the same passage. So these are, aren't different titles, it's all the same title. More important than titles are qualifications. Uh, pastors have to be qualified. They have to be qualified in their relationship to God, their relation to family, and their relationship to self. This is clearly laid out in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And there's not time uh, for, for, for us to read it and turn to it and, and unpack it. But what I have done on your outline is I've unpacked it. If you go and you read 1 Timothy chapter 3 and you go and compare it to Titus, you see this very simple breakdown of what the qualifications of an elder are to be. In relation to God, family, self, and others, and in our local church, we have men that have these qualifications, and hence they are part of our pastoral team. Currently, our ordained pastors in the church, I'm one of them, so sorry if this sounds self-serving this morning talking about pastors and whatnot, but somebody's got to do it. And Pastor Tony in the back. Uh, I saw Pastor Tony in the back. Give it up for Pastor Tony back there. And then we currently have, uh, we have our board members, Wayne and Travis and James, who are pastors in training who are effectively doing the work of pastors. So in terms of shared authority, uh, those three guys have the same power on paper as Pastor Tony and myself, and we share the collective responsibility of the presbutos, the poyumen, and the episkopos. So together, this is our pastoral team. And then we constantly have guys coming up the ranks. You guys know Marcelo and Ryan and Landon and other guys that we've been, you know, watching and seeing them serve and spending time with them and, and training them. We, we try to pour our, our lives into them. And, and we look at them and we say, what's their relationship to God like? What's their relationship to their families like? How, how does this look? Are, are, are they above reproach? Are they able to teach? Are they not a new convert? Have you seen them walking with Christ for years? What, what is their relationship in their family? Are they a husband of one wife? They have obedient children. They manage their family well. What's their relationship to themselves? Are they temperate, self-controlled, not, not given to drunkenness, not a lover of money, right? What is their relation to others? Are they respectable, hospitable, not violent, gentle, not contentious, have a good reputation with outsiders? You see, pastors, pastors are, are, are raised up by God. And these are the fruits of the Spirit. This is God at work in, in our lives to do these things. Mind you, these qualifications aren't like because pastors are supposed to be an elite class. 
These are just normal characteristics of a good Christian. And so all of us should be marked by these. So as you see these, you go, oh, those, hey, this is a helpful list, Pastor Matt. I want to work on these in my own life as we apply God's Word. But with regard to the pastors uh, who were on the PowerPoint slide a moment ago, uh, we step into this position with fear and trembling, for we read in James chapter 3, verse 1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Uh, God has placed a stricter judgment on the heads of pastors. And, and we, you can understand why. Because if they fall, the enemy can get the whole flock with them. If they, if they go off the rails getting into politics and this and that and whatever and stop preaching the gospel, they could take their whole congregation with them and turn them into that. They have to stay focused on the gospel. They, they have to train the church to know what the church is. We are the only place in the world where this is taking place, and we are all around the world, and wherever we go, we transform lives and communities and nations. So Delray Church, who, who will be the next men in the years to come who will raise up and see shepherd the flock? That is a question that only God can answer. To conclude this, uh, this message, you have point three on your outline, celebrating the church. So we've talked about our collective responsibility as a church, serving saints. We've uh, had a crash course learning leadership this morning. Uh, and then uh, to close, we want to be a church that celebrates. We want to be a church specifically that acknowledges, isn't God good to us? God cares for His church. He loves us. First uh, John 4.19, we love because He first loved us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. He's placed us in the church where we, as we're serving one another, we're displaying His love that He has given to us. God cares for His church. He loves us. God coaches His church. He, he provides for us leaders. I've had so many pastors in my life that have pointed me to Christ in so many incredible ways, including the pastors in this church over, over the years. Pastor Marlin. Man, that guy was awesome. Always, point, always pointing you to Jesus. We have pastors in this church that just point us to the Lord and, and, and lead and love and coach us. And as they're pointing us to the Word, we, we, we find that God's the one who's guiding us. And lastly, we've looked at the love of God. We've looked at the gift of leaders. Lastly, God calls out to His church. This is, what, this is where God's presence is known. The Spirit indwells His people. And He calls out to the church. Every Sunday, the church gathered. We hear His call. We hear His voice. The flock knows the voice of the shepherd. They hear His voice. They respond. I, I got a puppy this year, and very quickly that puppy learned my voice. I can be inside the house, and it will, it will walk and sit right by the window that's closest to me. It knows my voice. You know the voice of the Lord. You hear Him. And you know when those who are, who are speaking on behalf of Him are representing Him or not. And to represent Him, the faithful pastor every Sunday calls out to the church and says, look at the North Star. Where are you standing with Him? Do you know Him? Have you confessed your sin to Him? Have you given your life to Him? Do you know His love? And if not, come now. Come to Him now. He is mighty to save. He is love. He will forgive you of all that you have done. 
He will accept you. He will secure you. He will change you. Come to Him. The ultimate leader, the ultimate pastor is, is Jesus. I love this passage in Matthew 20 where He says, you know the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the world's greatest leader. He is the world's greatest shepherd. He sacrificed Himself for His flock. What we saw in Acts, purchased by His blood. And so we come now in response to His Word to the table where we have a picture of His blood. In the cup, we have a picture of His body in the bread. And we eat these not as a ritual to somehow merit His forgiveness. We already have His forgiveness. And so we respond as we come to the table in repentance and in faith. There's not a person in this room listening to this message who, who doesn't need to repent of something. There's not a person in this room who, who is, 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 is not in need of a sense of His love and acceptance of you. Hear the shepherd call. He calls you to come to worship Him. Let us celebrate Him as we come to the table and as our brother Landon leads us in song. And before we do, let's bow our heads and pray and give thanks to God before we sing and come to the table. Father, thank You for sending Your Son. Father, thank You for receiving His sacrifice. Thank You, Jesus, for pouring out Your Spirit. We give thanks that Your Spirit regenerates and saves and washes us. As we come to the table now, I pray that Your Spirit would draw us that we would have reassurance as we partake in these elements, these pictures of what You have done. We would have reassurance of all that You have accomplished for us. Receive these final songs of worship. Minister to us in this time of communion, we pray. As we respond to Your Word, may Your Word bear much fruit in us. In Christ's name, Amen.